Babylon. But the Persian emperor, who came later, released those Jews to return to their homeland. And they did, for the most part. When they returned to the homeland, that's when God sent three last prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, with these last messages. And Haggai, in particular, he's the first one. They're actually in proper order in the Old Testament, the first covenant. Haggai came first. Zechariah overlapped, but came just a little bit after. And then Malachi came last. Haggai preached four, or delivered four messages from God in four months. Very short ministry. It's the second shortest book in all the Old Testament. The only book shorter is Obadiah. But he gave four messages in four months. The first message, John did. Uh, he came up from Louisville when we went out to uh, a funeral in Richmond, Virginia. And the first message was a rebuke that the Jews living in Jerusalem had become complacent. They'd become apathetic. They were living in their own homes, but the temple of the Lord had been abandoned. They'd started the foundation, but it had been abandoned pretty quickly. And that was a problem. And so Haggai called them out, and, and the people responded rightly. The Lord stirred their spirits, and they started saying, yeah, we need to get back to work here. And so the work resumed. The second message, which I did last week from chapter 2 and the first nine verses, was now a message of encouragement. You've started the work, but it's harder and it's slower than you imagined it would be. So the second message is a message of encouragement. And picking up in verse 6 from last week, it reads like this. Here's part of the encouragement. By the way, if you're Eventually, you're going to be in Haggai, so it's that division between Old and New Testament. Go back three books in the Old Testament, you'll find Haggai. Chapter 2, verse 6 reads this way, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth, and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Just a few short verses there, and you've got this, this very uh, concise theology of who God is. Because in those few verses, I think it's four verses... You've got five times the Lord describes himself or he names himself or he proclaims himself as the Lord of hosts. Uh, the New English translation, which is the one I'm working on at home, calls him the Lord of heaven's armies. Or the way Moses would say it is, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. I'm the Lord of hosts. And it's because of who he is he's able to make these lofty promises. And what he says he will do twice is, I will shake. The first time, I'm going to shake heavens and earth, sea and dry land. The second time, I will shake all nations. He will do this shaking because he's the Lord of hosts. He's not making these grandiose promises, but he can't deliver. He's Lord of hosts. And so when he promises to do this great shaking, that's exactly what will take place. He also promises, I will fill this house with glory. 
I will fill this house with glory. What we're talking about here when we're talking about the character of God as described in those few short verses is his sovereignty, that he is a sovereign God. And so I thought I needed to define the word sovereignty. And I looked and I've got lots of quote books and I picked out a couple of quotes. And then my mind kind of went back to this book called The Sovereignty of God by Arthur Pink. And my story for this book is this is probably the book that started my library when I was 18 years old. Uh, I was at college at Cedarville University. Back then it was just a college. And I bought this book, apparently, unless it was on sale, because the price is written on the front, for $4.95, this hardback copy of Arthur Pink. And I read this book, and to say that God used it in a transformative way in my life would not be an understatement, because I, I discovered... Uh, a God that I was not acquainted with through my Lutheran tradition or through my Baptist tradition. He was a much bigger, much more sovereign God than what I had been acquainted with. Uh, This book was a real eye-opener. So I will give you, I'm going to read a paragraph out of uh, chapter 1 where it says, God's sovereignty defined. By the way, this book was written in 1930. I think Arthur Pink passed away in the 1950s. I might be wrong about that. Uh, He was quite a prolific author, and there's any number of things that he's written that have since were reduced to tracts, and they're not your normal kind of tracts, because they're very God-centric. So the sovereignty of God, he defines it this way. The sovereignty of God is an expression that once was generally understood. It was a phrase commonly used in religious literature. It was a theme frequently expounded on in the pulpit. It was a truth which brought comfort to many hearts and gave virility and stability to Christian character. But today, to make mention of God's sovereignty is in many quarters to speak in an unknown tongue. Were we to announce from the average pulpit that the subject of our discourse would be the sovereignty of God, it would sound very much as though we had borrowed a phrase from one of the dead languages. Alas, that it should be so. Alas, that the doctrine which is the key to history, the interpreter of providence, the warp and woof of scripture, and the foundation of Christian theology should be so sadly neglected and so little understood. The sovereignty of God. What do we mean by this expression? We mean the supremacy of God, the kingship of God, the godhood of God. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that God is God. To say that God is sovereign is to to declare that he is the most high, doing according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, so that none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? From Daniel chapter 4 and verse 35. He goes on, he writes an entire book. But that is something of the sovereignty of God. The first song captures neatly something of the sovereignty of God, turning your hymnal to number 117, and we will sing King of the Ages. Let's everybody stand. To prepare for the Lord's Supper, and again, I'll remind you that when I pass out the trays, if you wind up with the, the last person, it doesn't need to be passed any further. If you'll just bring the tray back forward, we'll stack the, the trays of uh, juice here and, and the, the baskets of bread over on the other side. Then we'll all partake together if, uh, if you know Christ is your Lord and your Savior. But to prepare us for this, I want to return to that. One of the phrases from last week, again, from Haggai chapter 2, and it was a... Uh, 
A fourth promise he gave, he said, twice I'm going to shake, and he said, once the glory of this house will be greater than the glory of the previous house. But he also said in verse 9 of Haggai chapter 2, and in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. In this place I will give peace. Peace is an important word. It's largely underestimated by Christians in the church because Christians in the church, in light of what we have in the gospel in the New Testament, we like the word grace. We like the word grace for good reason. And they're not at odds with one another. They're in complete harmony with one another. But we like grace for good reason. But in the Old Testament, the word that probably would be, the word that they most would have celebrated is the word peace. The word shalom. And peace in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, it doesn't just mean the absence of conflict. Peace in the Old Testament, according to the theological word book of the Old Testament, says this. Peace is the completion and fulfillment of entering into a state of wholeness and unity, a restored relationship. It's not just the absence of something, but it's the completeness of something. The fulfillment of something. It's all of God's promises brought to a a state of culmination. Now, grace accomplishes that, but the resulting state is peace. Is peace. When Adam and Eve sinned, Eve being deceived, Adam willfully trespassed against God's command. There was the forfeiture of peace. Peace was lost. Peace was lost between Adam and God his maker. Peace was lost between Adam and Eve. Now all relationships on earth would be marred by our sin, by our selfishness. You've experienced that. I've experienced that. So the absence of peace with God, the absence of peace with one another, and then most theologians will also add it's the absence of peace in creation. That we are at odds with the creation that God stewarded into our care. That we abuse creation and we, we use it to our own advantage in selfish ways and unproductive ways and ways that are not glorifying to God. In ways that don't demonstrate we're good stewards of what God has entrusted to us. We've lost peace with God, with one another. We're at odds with all that God has entrusted into our care. We even lack peace within ourselves. My own conscience can condemn me. Has, it does, it will in ways that I do not reflect the glory of God as I ought. The absence of peace. But God's promise through Haggai, in this place, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, in this place, I will give peace. I will give peace. The church is meant to be a foretaste of that promise. As much as we are still a work in progress... As much as we are still a flawed people, the church exists to be a taste of the peace that God has promised. My son Ryan uh, will be out there in a few weeks in Albuquerque, Lord willing, to, to visit him. At his church, they do something that, uh, it's a very liturgical church, and, and oftentimes a very liturgical church has a, a, a part of the service they call a passing of the peace. After there's been a time of corporate prayer and private prayer, and then from God's word, a declaration of what God says to his people when they confess their sins and, and live a life of repentance and faith and obedience, that there's a proclamation of how God has forgiven us in Christ. And we've received peace. 
The church has received peace. And then there's the passing of peace at his church, where that peace that we've received from Christ, we extend to one another. The passing of peace. There's an article I made available, I don't know, a month or so ago. I hope everybody has availed themselves of the article, called Forgive Us Our Sins. I made extra copies. Uh, The men just discussed it at the men's breakfast, but I've made additional copies on the back. If you have not yet read the article, I would recommend it highly to you. Uh, It was put out in March of 2020. Uh, And the article does a fabulous job about saying, in the church, which is a foretaste of the peace of God, in the church there is far more that unites us than could ever possibly divide us. And what unites us from that article, what it really highlights is, you know what unites us? We are all sinners. And we all need the grace of Christ. We're all sinners and we all need the grace of Christ. In spite of whatever differences we may have, over secondary doctrines, uh, over, uh, over matters that are temporal, that are going to be shaken one day. God has promised to shake those things. What unites us is, you know what? We are sinners in need of the grace of Christ. And the Lord's table brings that together so beautifully where we are confessing before God, our own conscience, and before one another within the church. I'm a sinner in need of God's grace just like you are. It's the passing of peace. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start these elements, and then at some point I'm going to try to guess. Beautiful lyric. The last two messages from Haggai. The first message, the, the third message now, but our first message for consideration today, in verse 11, starts off with, uh, ask the priests about the law. Ask the priests about the law, which makes good sense because when people had questions in those days, they couldn't Google it. Uh, They couldn't pull out their smartphone. They couldn't even go to the library. They couldn't even go home to check their own scroll. There was no internet. There was no Google. There was no library. And there was no scroll at your own house. So if you had a good question about what God had revealed, you went to the priests who were entrusted with knowing answers to those questions. And these two questions are not difficult questions. They're easy questions. A priest wouldn't have had to say, uh, I'll g- give me a day, I'll get back to you uh, tomorrow with a good answer. He would have known immediately, based upon his understanding of the law, and if we had all the time in the world, or more time than what we have, I could take you back to the first five books of Moses and show you why the priests answered the way that they did. It's based right out of what God had revealed to Moses, what God had entrusted to Moses to give to the people. So those two questions in verses 12 and 13, the two scenarios, what is determined is this. Number one, holiness is not contagious. You can't catch it. It's not transferable. Holiness is not. However, defilement or uncleanness is contagious. You can catch it. It is transferable. Now, that's the rule, though the great exception to the rule is the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he was unlike no other, so that when he walked on the earth and he did what was unthinkable by touching an unclean person, it actually worked in reverse. Because in any other circumstance, any other person, for a Jew to touch an unclean person would make them unclean. But when Jesus, and it specifically says it because it means it, he touched unclean people and they became clean because of who he was as the son of God, as the promised Messiah. 
So in that case, it worked in reverse, but that wasn't normal. The way it normally works is holiness is not transferable. You can't catch it, but defilement and uncleanness is transferable. You can catch it. If you've got a, a pile of dirty laundry in your laundry basket and you're like, I just don't have time to do laundry, I'll just take a, a, a piece of clean clothing, throw it in there, and it'll all be good. It doesn't work like that. What will happen is your one good piece of clothing will wind up smelling like all the clothing that needs washed. That's the way it works. What is unclean transfers itself. If we were a room full of sick people, it's not like we just need to pray that one unsick person comes in here because then we'll all be healed because it'll transfer that way. That's not the way it works. If somebody's sick... They're contagious, and other people may get sick as well. That's the way it works. That's the principle that he's teaching here. Parents, most parents, maybe there's the exceptional child, but at least with my three kids, especially since Sarah's not here, I can say with the world, uh, but with my three kids, we had to work to try to teach them good manners. We had to work to try to teach them, say please, how do you ask? What do you say when somebody gives you something? You say, thank you. You have to work so hard to get them to do what is right, what is good. It takes effort. It doesn't come naturally. But I didn't have to teach my kids to tell a lie or to be deceptive or to hide things or to be selfish. That comes quite naturally. Holiness is not contagious. Sin is very contagious. Defilement and uncleanness is very contagious. That's the principle uh, that's brought out in this uh, third message. And then the point comes in verse 14. The reason why those questions were asked is to make this point in verse 14. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands, what they offer there is unclean. Well, it starts off with kind of a sad reality, and that is the first two questions were easily answered. They were doctrinal questions. They were questions of purity, of etiquette. The priests were asked these questions. They came up with really great answers, but I don't think they saw the point behind the questions until Haggai blurted it out. And the reality is this. I've known people who are very good at dispensing their theological wisdom and they've got a lot of problems at home or in their own personal life. It's a lot harder to apply theology to personal life than it is to know it and dispense it to everybody else. I know that to be the case because I'm guilty. It's very easy for me, or or it's easier for me, to, to study the Bible, to come up with what I think is right, to what I think is true, to be able to answer people's questions. It is much harder to actually implement it in my own life. So that the way I think and the way I treat other people and my own selfishness is kept in check and I'm convicted by it. It's a lot easier to know what everybody else should do than to actually do it myself. That's that's what he's telling the people in verse 14. That's a problem. There's a disorder that they have. That they're not applying what they know in a meaningful way. The disorder is further complicated by the fact that what they do, what they were doing, it seems, what I do often, 
my disorder is this. If something is amiss, if something is wrong, if I'm feeling maybe convicted about something in some area, I just try to up my game in some aspect of my life without really addressing the rest of my life. It's not consistent. It's not entire. It's not whole. I don't want God to mess with everything. I just want to do enough to get a better outcome than what I've got prior to this point. I mean, Eve's not here this week. I assume she's down in St. Louis seeing Alex. But I saw, uh, I started going to Eve. I had a side, actually Rich and, and Vince both convinced me from Frisbee last week because I couldn't run. This, I call it a sci- sciatic nerve. Was I mean, the pain is just killing me. And they're like, you should see Eve. Like, like she does so, she does. Rich couldn't play the week before. And he's like, I went a couple times. I'm feeling so much better. And I'm like, I've never been to a chiropractor, but I think... I gotta go. I mean, this is not this is a problem. So I went to I went to Doctor Eve. It's a really quite a role reversal. Uh, it was blowing my mind, but she's very thorough, and and I can recommend her from so far that I'm into it. I've been twice. I've scheduled now twice next week as well. I already feel better. She uh, did some adjustments on Tuesday, and then Wednesday in Good News Club, I was able to run better than I had the week before easily, easily, but. I kind of realize, and if you've been to a chiropractor, you've been to Dr. Eve, I mean, they generally have a much more holistic approach than really what I'm kind of looking for. Like, I just want you to solve this problem I have that's keeping me from running. But she really is thinking, you know, you need to think bigger than that. Like, if you do these exercises and, you know, you follow these protocols, you're going to be in a... Do you stretch before you exercise? I'm like, leave. I haven't stretched for 60 years. I haven't stretched. (laughs) Like, I just kind of do it. It just kind of works for me. And she's like, well, I, really, you need to start stretching, and you need to do these things. And I'm like, well, nobody stretches like Vince. I mean, Vince is out there stretching. Rich is out there stretching. And I'm like, oh, I know I need to do these other things. That's kind of the problem in Haggai, that they do have a problem, and they're being confronted with their problem, and they're willing to address their problem, but does everything have to change? I mean, does God really want the whole... All of me, or can I just do enough to get a better outcome than what I've got to this point? That's what's happening in Haggai. There's a problem. There's a breakdown in the relationship. There's a breakdown in their obedience. There's a breakdown in their faith. The language used is very impersonal in verse 14. The Lord's message is to this people and this nation and their hands. That's impersonal language. That's not the language that I typically read when we're in Isaiah, where we'll be back again next week. We'll resume with chapter 60. But the Lord often, mostly calls them, these are my people. These are my people. But it's very impersonal in Haggai. This people. This nation. It kind of reminds me of a story in the Gospels. You remember the prodigal son, the, the, the parable of the two sons. And the one uh, wayward son, the one who, who spent all of his inheritance in, a, in a, a very sinful lifestyle. And then he came back in repentance. And the father ran out to meet him. And he threw a feast for this son. And then the older son is coming in from working. And he's like, what's the celebration all about? And somebody, one of the servants says, your brother has returned. And he's not going to go in. The older brother's like, I'm not going in. That, that loser has the nerve to come back now after losing everything. 
and the, and the father comes out, and uh, the father refers to him as your brother. But the older son says, this son of yours, not my brother, very impersonal, not a, broken, a lack of peace, no wholeness, no restoration, no reconciliation. This son of yours lost everything, and this is what you do for him? Look at me. Look at all I've done. Where's my party? He's not in right relationship either. There's a lack of peace between that son as well, though he doesn't recognize it. Tim Keller wrote a fabulous book called Prodigal God based on that story, which I would highly recommend. I'm sure Lori's well into that book now, since maybe not. But at any rate. <laughs> so we've got, a, we've got a breakdown in relationship. We've got a breakdown in thinking. And then what you also need to know is that uh, to get a, a little bit more complete part of the picture is that between message two, uh, in Haggai chapter two, verses one to nine, that was on the seventh month on the 21st day of the month. Now message three is the ninth month on the 24th day. Between those two messages, Zechariah starts his ministry. And Zechariah has a message too. So flip over maybe just a page in your Bible to Zechariah chapter 1. Look at what Zechariah said to the same people that Haggai has been talking to. It starts off like this. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore... Say to them, to say to these exiles, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. The message Zechariah gives to the same people Haggai is preaching to is, return to me, don't be like your fathers. Which tells me that what Haggai is dealing with are people that have not wholly returned to the Lord. Because Zechariah is telling them, you've got to return. Well, we changed the, We started work on the temple. But you can start work on a temple and not really return. I mean, they had a temple before. In Isaiah, they had a temple. They were offering sacrifices. They were offering incense. Uh, they were offering prayers. And God said, it makes me sick. So what are they going to do? Build a second temple that makes God sick? There's no return just because you've done some act of obedience. You can, I can be standing up here teaching you out of God's word, and if I haven't returned to the Lord, this makes God sick on some level. And it makes, you, makes him sick that you're just sitting there thinking you've checked in to a church service on a Sunday morning, and you intend to go live your own life after you leave this place. It makes God sick. He wants people who have returned to him wholly, completely. That's the problem in Haggai. So the Lord is warning against outward conformity without real inward change. You're going to change just enough to make your parents happy, just enough to keep up appearances, just enough uh, to look good, but you really haven't returned. That's the problem Haggai is dealing with. That's the same problem that uh, Zechariah is dealing with. So the people are at a juncture, an important juncture. What will they do in light of these messages? The third message is, if the first one was a rebuke, 
And the second was an encouragement. This message, the word that I came up with, is that this message is an invitation. It's an invitation to be different. It's an invitation to do it right, to not be like they were. It's an invitation. He, uh, the Lord calls for a, a review of recent history. So in verse 15, Haggai chapter 2, verse 15 says, Now then consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? And then skipping down to verse 18, Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider. Is the seed yet in the barn? So what's happening is, the phrase that's repeated twice is, consider from this day onward. That's repeated twice. What, what I believe he's telling the people in the little bit of time we have, because Haggai, I'm really kind of doing it an injustice. I think we could spend quite a bit longer on Haggai. But I think what the Lord is saying is, consider from this day onward, here you are today, what's it going to be like tomorrow? Think back to the way it was. Consider the way it was before. Before the foundation was laid, what were the results of your attitude and your behavior? And the results were, we didn't reap, and we weren't receiving the blessing nearly like we thought we would. And that would be true. It was difficult. Haggai confronted them in chapter 1 with that. Uh, All the ways that they thought that they would be blessed, it always underperformed. Because God was striking them. Because his temple was being neglected. All right, so that's the way it was. Now, consider from this day onward, here you are today, what's tomorrow going to be like? And he asks a question, and his question is, is the seed yet in the barn? And do you know the answer to the question? The answer to the question, is the seed yet in the barn? And the answer is, no, it's not, because they've planted the seed. They're getting ready for Next year, the crops growing. Next year, tending to those crops. Next year, harvesting those crops. Right now, the verdict is out. Right now, they don't know which way it's going to go. He tells them, uh, not only is the seed not in the barn, right now, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree, they've yielded nothing. We don't know what next year is going to hold. But God promises them at the end of verse 19... From this day on, I will bless you. But what's it going to be? Will you respond in faith to my promise? Or are you going to go right back to living the way that you were, and you're going to find out you get the same results? What's it going to be? He's calling, he's inviting them to respond in faith to his promise. It doesn't have to be this way. But you've got to return to me wholly. Not just enough to get your desired result. You've got to return to me wholly. What's it going to be? That's the second message. And we don't know exactly how it turns out according to Haggai. If you read Nehemiah, there is a very high moment. It may be one of the highest moments in all of Israel's history where they worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. But now let's go to the third, well, actually, right before I go to the third, or the last message, the fourth message, right before I do that, let me make one more application regarding how holiness is is not contagious or transferable. What that means is everybody in your family could be a Christian, and that's not going to help you at all if you're not. What it means is 
If everybody in this room right now is a Christian but one, that is not going to help the one who has not committed, not surrendered themselves before God Almighty, who has not received the forgiveness of sins. Just because your parents have raised you in a godly home, just because you have godly grandparents, just because you may have gone to a gotten a Christian education, just because you may have uh, gathered with the church however many Sundays, that will not help you at all standing before God Almighty. I remember uh, one of the ways that 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 thought impacted me was reading in a book, one day you will stand before God and you're not going to be singing in the choir, you're going to be singing solo. It's going to be you and God and you will give an account of how you lived your life and who you knew and whether Christ was your Savior or not. And you're not going to be able to say, well, my parents and my grandparents, and you don't know how many preachers we had or how many times I was drugged to a church service. None of that will matter. It's you and God. So I would implore you, if you have not recognized Christ as Lord and Savior, that there is nothing preventing you from doing that so far as I know, but to recognize, to cry out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I am in need of your grace. And I need my life changed, not a little bit, but from the ground up. A complete renovation by your goodness and by your grace. All right, now let's go to the very last message. The final message begins in verse 20. It occurs on the same day. There's similarities with what we've already seen in Haggai, and there's differences. Verse 20. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. What's the same is that same language of upheaval that we saw back in the first part of chapter 2, where God promised to shake heaven and earth, land and sea, how God promised to shake all the nations, and now he promises again this this great shaking, heavens and earth. I'm going to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms. It's this great shaking. The message, this last message of Haggai is, there's a good future coming. And everything that you think you know to be true today is not going to hold true. Because how, whatever kingdoms you may fear, whatever powers you may fear, whatever people that seem like they have power and authority, it doesn't matter, they will be shaken. God is sovereign, men are not it will all be shaken. That's a good word. That's a message of encouragement. Things are not going to stay the same. My people will receive peace, will find favor in who I am and what I've done. So that that part of the message is exactly what we've already seen in Haggai. What's different about this last message is for the first time it's not to all the people. This message is for Zerubbabel. He's the only one named. It's a a message specifically for Zerubbabel, the governor. Now, he's in the kingly line of David, but he's not a king. He's a governor, and he's very much under some uh, authority of the Persian Empire right now. He's granted authority by them. He's a governor. 
But this message is specifically for Zerubbabel. And the message is, on that day, and the day that's being referred to is the day that was just described where there was this great shaking of heaven and earth and the nations. So on that day, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, and make you like a signet ring, for I've chosen you. Now, it's pretty easy to discover, so far as anybody can tell, Zerubbabel never saw that happen in his life. And so everything that I've read, and I think for good reason is, what the Lord is promising to Zerubbabel, it's promised to to Zerubbabel as a representative of Messiah. Because he's in the kingly line of David. And what the Lord is promising is, I haven't forgotten my covenant with David. I haven't reneged on my promise that David will always have a man ruling on the throne. And his name will endure forever. And that will be fulfilled by Jesus. It will be fulfilled by Jesus. It, things don't, they look pretty bleak in Haggai's day. Even the temple that they're working on is not very impressive. And Zerubbabel is at best a governor. But the Lord is making a promise not only to Israel, not only to what he's going to do in the nations, but down to the man, the Lord will fulfill his covenant promises. And in this case, it's to Zerubbabel, who is a representative of all that will be fulfilled in Messiah Jesus. It will all come to fruition. And we will see that play out. Zerubbabel is named in both genealogical trees, the one that's found in Matthew's gospel, the one that's found in Luke's gospel. Zerubbabel is part of the family tree because it's all the line of David. God made promises to David. They will be fulfilled in Christ on that day. Ultimately, completely on that day. What are your comments and questions? Next week, we will go back to Isaiah chapter 60. So we're going to go back from the year 520 B.C. to roughly the year 700 B.C. We're going to go back about 200 years before the exile, before Jerusalem's walls were laid bare, before the temple was destroyed. We're going to go back to Isaiah chapter 60. Joe? Yeah, uh, there's definitely... It's a consider your ways was the big emphasis. And then the people responded rightly. I mean, uh, they came and worked on the house of the Lord of God. So they they were responding in some measure of obedience, but not enough that Zechariah didn't still have to say you need to return to the Lord. Like just because you have a temple, just because you, you know, if I were to apply it, just because somebody starts going to church doesn't mean it's right with God. I mean, I've told this story before, but I'm sure not everybody's heard it. At least I like to tell myself that. <clears throat> I've got a friend, sort of a friend, uh, like, who knows, back when I was first married, one of the guys I worked with at Red Lobster was uh, James Brown. He was a, a black guy, James Brown, and he calls me, lives in Memphis, he's a police officer now. He'll call me every five to eight years. He'll just kind of call and we check, we'll touch base. But James Brown wasn't a believer when I worked with him at Red Lobster. Uh, He was living with a gal. They had a couple kids. And I was witnessing to James Brown. I'd give him Tony Evans cassettes. And, uh, and he came one, one back day to work. He came to work. He was so excited. He's like, he's like, I went to church, you know? And I'm like, well, that's, that's fine. But God doesn't really care whether you go to church or not. You know, God wants your life. He wants you to, he wants, 
And I explained salvation again, and he was kind of he was kind of downcast. Like he thought I went to church. Like we started building the temple. It's good. Like let's. And I'm like, it's not just. It's not church. Some when we Cindy and I went to the Free Methodist Church, they would sometimes they celebrated or they would pray that somebody would come back to church. Well, yes, if coming back to church means because you've gotten right with God. But the fact that people come to church, nobody goes to heaven because they went to church. But saved people, redeemed people do go to church. Okay, there is a connection there. But it's not because you came to church that you go to heaven. So uh, I kept giving him Tony Evans tapes and, and he became a believer. And he got, he got married within a week. He, he, he became a believer and before a week was out, he went and got married because that's what God wanted. Uh, his life's changed. I mean, he's on track with God 30 years later, uh, doing wonderfully because the grace of God is not without effect. The grace of God is not without effect.